Just a quick word of warning. This podcast tells honest and raw stories from the Australian bushfires that may be triggering for some people. Please take care when listening to this podcast and stop if it makes you feel anxious or uncomfortable in any way. We recommend wearing headphones, especially if there are kids around. Catastrophic. Tales from the Aussie bushfires. I'm Karen Biggers. I'm a wildlife veterinarian and author, and um, I do a lot of work with uh, Australian native wildlife in the field. I've had many experiences over many years, unfortunately, with bushfires in Australia. Um, stemming back to 1983 was the first fire I had any uh, contact with. And my, at that time, my family were living at Emerald in the Dandenong Ranges. And we had a view over Upper Beaconsfield and Cockatoo was right behind us uh, when those places lit up and burned in 1983. And when I think about it now, looking back, within a few days, I was riding my horse through the burnt landscape um, in the bush uh, on the slopes, the steep slopes of Cockatoo. And I remember riding my horse through the ashes and the, the um, charred landscape and there were smouldering trees around me. It was really dangerous when I look back now. The police let me through the roadblock because I was on, on horseback. But really, there could have been falling trees and I just remember the silence, the silence of the bush. Um, having ridden a lot as a child through that, that landscape, I was used to the sort of the murmur of the leaves and the smell of the trees and it was quite dense, dense bush, wet bush. But it was the silence and the, the white ash on the ground and the charred trees and in many places, you know, even the canopies had been burned. So, so that was my first encounter with bushfires. And then... Um, in 2003, you know, I live in Canberra and, and we were, were here when the bushfires burned um, burned from the Brindabella Ranges into Canberra. We had friends that lost property, um, lost their houses, um, lost their pets. Um, I, my probably, well, the, the last two fire stories are, are possibly my most intense ones, I guess. In 2009 in the Black Saturday fires that um, burned so fiercely and ferociously in Victoria. My parents live on a farm in the, in the Yarra Valley, uh, which is quite close to King Lake and Strath Creek and some of those areas that were completely incinerated. And my husband and I have worked extensively in the mountain ash forest up behind Hillsville, um, around Marysville and those places as well. And um, on the night of the fires, it was a really quite a hot day. I think it was about 35 in Canberra. But down in Melbourne, it was obscenely hot. It was 48 degrees uh, that day in Melbourne. Mum and Dad have a property that's um, 85 acres and a vineyard in the Yarra Valley. It's really beautiful. There's the swimming pool overlooks the rolling hills. Anyway, there was about 5.30, my mum rang back and she said, the fires are here. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She said, they're here. What should I take? So, you know, completely unprepared, no warning, really no notification. And I said, well, I don't know. Um, if you're going to go, then grab the photo albums and, and, and grab the dogs and go. And, 
And she said, oh, I've got to go. I've got to go. The fires are here. And uh, then there was five hours um, in which we heard nothing. I think it's interesting. Victoria seems to do this. Massive areas seem to go up in a day, um, which was so different. I mean, Mallacoota went and all East Gippsland went in pretty much a day as well in these fires that have just um, just passed. But, you know, we've had fires for weeks and months burning right down the Great Dividing Range. But I don't know what it is about Victoria that it, it goes so intensively and so ferociously. And what was really interesting about these fires is that my parents had always expected the fires to come from the north or the, the northwest because that was the direction of the prevailing winds. But what had happened is those the northerlies had blown the, the fire from King Lake past their property and it was a southerly change that turned the fire around and brought it up through their property. What saved them really were two things. Um, one was that their farm is in uh, grassland and open woodland. So they weren't in forest, which is where so many people lost their lives. 173 people died on that day. Um, so what saved them was the fact that that they, their farm was in more open country. And we always thought it would be the swimming pool and the pump and the hose that saved the house. But it, what in fact saved the house was the circular driveway on the south side of the house that caused the fire to split and go around the house and then on through the property and up into the state forest um, on the other side of the road. So, so they were lucky that they saved their house and they saved their lives, but um, pretty much... Apart from that, the entire property burned. And so, you know, it wasn't until 10.30 at night um, that mum rang through and said, oh, we're okay. Um, they had been busy fighting the fires all that time. And, and after they let us know they were okay, they continued to fight fires through till 3.30 in the morning um, when they were just too exhausted and just going to get a bit emotional here. They went to bed and held hands in case that was the end. But um around them you know there were trees burning the whole time and you know a six foot six meter wall of flame had rushed up to the house and during the night they could see the vineyard it was like cigarettes burning this this the uh, posts smoldering um as they slowly burned down in the vineyard and um yeah so it was just um pretty horrendous time but they were lucky you know and this is this is funny i want to talk about this concept of luck because um with those fires um you were considered lucky if you survived, which I understand so many people lost their lives. It was just horrendous. And, and we knew people that lost their lives up near Marysville um, in a places that we'd worked. And that's, you know, there's nothing worse than, than that. Um, but there is still a cost and there's still an impact, a major impact of the trauma of fighting the fires and of, and my parents were lucky to save their house too. That was another category. So, in terms of those fires, they were three rungs down in, in terms of bad luck or, or misfortune, I suppose you'd say. Um, but, you know, it still had a major, major impact and has taken a long time for them to recover. And um, I think um, I'm also a novelist and, and I haven't written about fires. And I think part of the reason I haven't written about fires is because um, those fires were just so costly in terms of human life and homes. And, and, and I felt and everybody felt that my parents were lucky, unlucky to be burned, but lucky to have, have um, escaped with, with those important things intact. So I felt it might be trivialising the, the impact on others to try and fictionalise the fires. But at some stage, I may do it. Um, it's just in many ways still been too hard to go back. The thing that 
first strikes you apart from when you go into the fire zone is the um the smell of, of the burnt landscape it's a really acrid bitter um horrendous smell and i'd experienced that before when i was helping my friends uh, try to tidy up their farm after the 2003 fires and so the positive thing was the incredible rallying of the community uh, uh, the whole of australia and their generosity of donating things um to help in the period after the fires and also uh, the incredible community spirit of people that came out to help uh, but the other thing that was amazing in the recovery period over the months that followed was my mum is a real community person and so she really rallied um, all the people around her and in the area and they formed what they called a fire guard group um, and and created a communications tree so that because there was no notification at the time and um, and so they, now if and I was terrified this year that they might burn again uh, with the when the Victorian fires were raging across from East Gippsland. Um, and but they have in place now a, a whole community around response to fire, and they've had mum organises events periodically, and they have visiting speakers, and they've they had it was just fantastic. They were offered Australia was so generous; they were offered access to counselling and and all sorts of different groups that um that helped them in that recovery phase. And I really hope that the same sort of support for recovery is available for people this time as was available to, to my mum and dad and, and people in, in those um, 2009 Black Saturday fires. I fear that the, the scale of the fires this time might mean that there just isn't the, the same reach, but I, I hope that there is because I know Australians have been incredibly generous this time as well in, um, in donating money um, for that recovery period. But, you know, we had, they had posts um, delivered to help rebuild fences and then working bees, community working bees, not just our friends, but um, other groups of people that came in and helped to rebuild the fences so they could bring the bring the, the cows back when um, some grass started to come through and that sort of thing. So it really was a big experience that I've kind of gone on with life and tucked it into the background. And of course, some um, these more recent these these fires that we've experienced this year 19 2019 20 starting way back in september have, have brought a, a whole lot of things um back up for me and um that's it's been a difficult time hasn't it you know i think everybody's been touched by them and everybody's been moved and distressed and knowing friends you know, so many friends this time that were under threat and friends that have burned like um whose places have burned like sulari gentle who you've also interviewed and um, as a veterinarian, I um, wanted to try and do something. We all feel powerless at times like this, don't we, in the cities, watching it all taking place and wondering what we can do um, and experiencing the grief of, of knowing so much countries burning and so many animals, so many animals dying. And I'm, I'm very passionate about Australian forests and landscapes and, and wildlife, so in the aftermath of the fires, I really wanted to see what I could do. And um, one of my um, author friends, who I think you've also interviewed, Inga Simpson, I was chatting to her and asking her how she was doing and, and saying, well, do you know, um, I'm not sure where to start trying to offer my services as a vet, you know, I'm willing to do it for, for nothing um, to come down and, and see what I can do to help. And, and she connected me up with um, 
the Maruya um, Wires group um, and a wonderful woman who's part of that group called Julie um, Taylor-Mills, who's she's just an incredibly um, motivated and, and active person who's really good fantastic at connecting people and she said come and stay down at my place at Maringo and and come and stay here and so I was able eventually to um, gather together all the gear that I needed um, a dart rifle sedatives um, medications bandaging materials um, darts and all that sort of thing and and go down to the south coast so I was mainly in that area from Maruya um, north through to Kyola and um, Borley Point and um, and try and offer my services down there, and you know I found it pretty traumatic. I, I had two two main roles. Um, I guess you could say they were all positive, though they didn't all feel positive at the time. Um, so what I was doing was it was helping wildlife carers who were um, looking after and treating uh, kangaroo joeys, eastern grey kangaroo joeys, and wallabies uh, that had burned feet from the fires. Um, but joeys mainly because uh, whilst we'd like to be able to treat everything, um, it's very difficult and very stressful to try and treat and handle um, adult uh, kangaroos and adult wallabies. So they were doing great work uh, looking after these joeys um, and bandaging and, and caring for them. And I went to one carer's place and she had all, I'd never seen this before, but it's a really good idea. She had little baby's portacots set up and a joey in each portacot and with it with their pouch hanging in there and some food and their little bandaged feet and that was the main injury that I was seeing was these little burnt feet and sometimes four feet as well so it was mainly mainly helping with with that which was um really positive wonderful motivated um passionate wildlife carers uh, who were doing you know a, as best a, a great job um and as best a job they could with the, the joeys that had come into them um, one of them, her own property had burnt and they'd been lucky enough that some fire engines could come in and save the house and a helicopter had, had come over and, and Fiery had been in communication and said, oh, um, is there anything else that you want to save other than the house? And she said, well, this is my, they had a big shed that they look after the joeys in. And she said, well, if you can save that, then I'll have somewhere to do my work afterwards. So a load of water was, I think, dumped on, on that and it managed to escape the fires so she had the infrastructure to to do her rescue work which was just amazing the other work I was doing was um going out onto some farms um to help assess uh burnt um was assess surviving animals to see if if um, they were okay or not and and I was coming in about two weeks after um the fires had gone through in in that area so when I came in, it was really that two-week window when burns were starting to get infected. And so it became clearer which animals were going to be okay and which animals weren't. They were pleased to have veterinary input to say, well, look, these animals are doing okay, but see these ones, they really need to be, be put down. I drove through a lot of forest as well. And I was, I guess... Uh, I wasn't being entirely rational at the time, but I was thinking, oh, I thought I'd see some live animals in here, but um, I didn't see many. Um, I think most of the animals that were there would have been burned um, and they didn't really even see evidence of any because the fires were very, very hot around there. So, um, you know, those animals would have, would have perished and burned and, um, and same with, all, with many reptiles and things. Um, there was some positivity as well in the time that I was there. 
So the area north of Batemans Bay, so um, uh, the Currawin fire when it first started was north of the King's Highway. Those areas were, it was a month after the fires that I was coming through there. And I was astounded to see that so many of the eucalypts were already starting to sprout epicormic growth up their trunks and branches. And, um, and so that's, that was an incredibly positive thing. You know, the Australian bush is fortunately um, highly resilient. I mean, we've never seen ever, um, despite what some climate deniers will say, we've never in this country had any fires as extensive um, as these ones. There's never been in Australia so much country burned. And fire ecologists know that this is so because they are able to tell uh, from um, the landscape and from the trees. It's called a fire regime or a fire history that they are able to, um, to work out uh, if they study that landscape. And there's never been anything like that before in Australia. But the bush is incredibly resilient and it will recover um, so long as we humans don't go in there and stuff it up. <laughs> so um, after the fires, um, we're, we're tempted to, well, there's a lot of pressure, to, especially in state forests, to go in and salvage log, um, salvage log the forests. But my, my husband's a, for, a, um, a, forest, a forest ecologist and he's worked in the Victorian mountain ash forest for I think it's 37 years now. And so he um, set up studies around the 2009 um, Black Saturday bushfires um, not only in areas of national park, but also in state forests to look at the recovery of the forest and the impacts of salvage logging. And they found massive, massive impacts of salvage logging on the recovery of the forest, on the soils and um, on the forest wildlife and the ability of the system to um, rebound. And on the basis of that, um, the Victorian government has been very, of his findings, the Victorian government has been very reticent to go in and do any salvage logging because the science shows that it's not a sensible thing to do and that the impacts of salvage logging can last for a minimum of 40 years, if not centuries, on the recovery of the landscape. So it really is nonsensical for us to be going in and salvage logging. Um, I think it, it is actually uh, New South Wales State Forests have gone in and, and started salvage logging. But if, uh, if you look at the science, it's uneconomic. Like the, the trees that, that they take out are worth nothing. They work next to nothing. And in fact, after the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires, a number of contractors in the Victorian forests went broke because there was no money to be made through salvage logging. So it really isn't a sensible thing to be doing and we shouldn't be doing it. Um, the other thing is that that we every many many animals have burned and died in these fires, and that's that's almost unfathomable when you think of the one to two billion animals lost of of so many different species. And and in that estimate, there's many that weren't included as well. Like of course, not insects, not frogs, and um, I don't know if that included the birds and things as well. I think it might have. Um, but what my husband's studies also showed is that even in intensively burned landscapes, a surprising number of animals actually do survive. And when you think about it, you know, people think that the trees are all dead when they see them burnt and with no canopy. But when you think about trees and the way trees are structured, um, the, the inner, inner parts of the trees um, 
can survive and often do. Some trees, of course, do die, but many, many trees will survive. And when you think about, if you know anything about the biology um, of botany, there's the xylem around the tree is where they pump the water, the tree pumps water up to its crown, to the leaves. That's like a layer of insulative water around the core of the tree. So um, this is why when a, a fire goes through and if a canopy is burnt, the tops of the trees are burnt, the chemistry of the tree changes and, and tells the tree to, to throw out these epicormic growths so they can start to photosynthesize again. So if we leave the trees alone, most of them will recover. The other, th the other thing that happens, even on those intensely burnt sites, under fallen trees, um, inside hollows in some of the standing trees, um, my husband's work has shown that, that small mammals like bush rats and antichinus can survive. And so they had done genetic work before the fires in Victoria and then after the fires and seen that genetic message continuing. So they knew that those animals had actually survived the fires and were, were able to start recolonizing the forest in the aftermath. So, um, there, you know, there is hope. The problem is um, the frequency of fires. You know, if, if some of these, if this country gets burned too often, like most of the forests um, have evolved to cope with burns every um, 50 to 100 years. Um, so interestingly, um, uh, some of the work that's that's done been done crunching data from the, the new fires in East Gippsland has shown that 48% of that country was burned in the last 10 years. And that's that's when things start to get problematic because um, firstly, you often get replacement of the, the um, there hasn't been time if, if many trees have died. If you get forests too frequently and not enough tree survival, then you lose the seed bank and then different species um, that are not suitable for wildlife fodder or, you know, to eat, like greater gliders, um, can start to come through. So um, there is a problem if we start to have really, really frequent fires and if we tamper too much um, with the landscape. Um, there's been also a lot of talk about thinning the forest um, or doing selective logging um, rather than, than um, clear felling or well, trying to find some form of, of, of logging. Um, but unfortunately, um, it's scientists, my husband's science and other scientists around the world have shown that thinning the forest opens the canopy and leaves a lot more litter on the ground. And so it actually makes forests more fire prone. So there's a lot of, I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the aftermath of these fires, there needs to be a lot of thought into how um, the recovery is tackled and, and um, whether it's um, time to start um, I mean, you know, there's jobs involved, obviously, and I'm concerned for people's jobs that work in the forestry industry. But it's, it's, it's most of the money that is made from, from cutting forests comes from plantation timber, plantations and plantation timber. So in Victoria, 87% of native forest that is cut goes to wood chip, which is low, low economic, low return um, and is very difficult for the um, contractors to make a living. Um, it really is time um, to be looking at transitioning more of those uh, contractors into um, plantations and plantation harvesting. And a lot of them already do work part-time in plantations. And in, the inst and in, in instances um, uh, of there not being enough employment there, we need to be 
society needs to be supporting and the government needs to be supporting those people to retrain and do other jobs and start transitioning the forest to carbon storage for the future and for tourism. I, th I think that one of the key issues is that um, the major driver of bushfires is climate and weather. So there is no, sure you can't say what caused one particular fire or what was another, you, you know, it's all banded around saying that, oh, you know, we can't blame, we can't lay the blame at the feet of climate change. We can't say climate change caused one particular fire. But the fact is that given that climate and weather are the major drivers of bushfires, um, because they cause, you know, climate causes drying, and then you get more and more extreme weather events, we do have to take action on climate change. And um, climate denialism is just a convenient um, economic um, argument to avoid having to, to take the big decisions. I mean, you know, they always talk about the fact that coal mining is going to provide, you know, coal mining provides jobs. Well, there will be many, many new jobs in renewable energy. And it's known. I mean, it's been known and it's been shown. And it can be reliable with the battery storage that's now available. We just our politicians do have to be making some of those decisions. Um, unfortunately, you know, coal has a strangle grip on um, uh, the government and uh, it seems to be that they're paralysed and are unable to or unwilling to listen to, to science and listen to um, arguments about how change needs to be made. We have, you know, the... The, the climate, one of the things that my husband and I often say is, you know, if, you, if you're sick and you have a medical illness, you go to a doctor and then to a specialist who will inform you how to um, recover from that illness and, and what to do. Um, so when we are having issues with um, climate change and with burning and drying in, in the environment, you need to go to climate scientists to talk to them. No, you don't speak to a right-wing shock jock. A right-wing shock jock does not have the knowledge and the information or the evidence to back up what they are trying to say. You, you need to go to the people in science that know about climate change. I guess one of the difficulties is that we do have dissenting, um, a, a small handful of dissenting uh, scientists out there who are happy to to have airtime um, and to 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 spread their views, but the overwhelming body of science—it's absolutely overwhelming. It's more certain that climate change is occurring and that it is human-induced than it is that smoking causes lung cancer. Like, <laughs> let's face it—it's it's absolutely ridiculous that that um, we're not listening. The other things that I would say for um, for politicians is. Um, to talk to forest uh, scientists and forest ecologists, not to be salvage logging, that thinning and selective logging is is um, is not effective in um, preventing fires, and in fact makes the bush more fire prone, and that clearing, increasing clearing, is part of the reason why we're here in the first place. Because if trees bring moisture, and if you clear all the trees, there is less rain, no agriculture. Like it's just it's just a no-brainer. Um, yeah, the evidence is clearly there that we need to be uh, conserving conserving our, our natural places. And then of course, it's hard to make change. And we talk about how expensive it's going to be. It's going to cost more the longer we leave it. And we only, from what I understand from the climate scientists, we have 10 to 12 years to, to make that change. So we really need to somehow galvanise society to put pressure on governments to, um, to make those changes. And my fears are that now it's rained and we've had some floods and that the fires are no longer 
forefront and uh, foremost in the media that um, people will get on with their busy lives and forget. You're listening to Catastrophic, a dual podcast and political protest project. Catastrophic tells the tales of the Australian bushfires and calls for all partisan political action around climate change. Each episode of Catastrophic features an Australian talking about their experience of living through the bushfire crisis, what their fears are now and for the future, and what they would like to see done about it on a government level. But it doesn't end when the episode of Catastrophic goes out. We at Listen Up Podcasting are taking every story we gather, every episode we release of the Catastrophic Podcast and sending it to all the politicians every single week. We will also be alerting the media organisations every single time a file goes out. That way, the police can't pretend these stories don't matter and that these demands for change don't exist. So what are the demands? What are we demanding on the Catastrophic Podcast from the government? Pretty simple, really. One, no new coal, oil and gas projects, including the Adani Mine and the Wallara 2 Coal Project. Two, 100% renewable energy generation and exports by 2030. Three, fund a just transition and job creation for all fossil fuel workers and communities. Four, hand over land conservation management to First Nations Australians. Five, Start preserving our water and treating it as a precious resource, not a sellable commodity. If you or anyone you know has a story they would like to share from or about the Aussie bushfires, please instant message us via the Catastrophic Podcast Facebook page or email us at info at listenuppodcasting.com.au and we will get in touch with you and record your story. It may not be straight away. We are fielding a lot of stories at the moment, but every single one is important and we will get to all of them. Thank you for listening to and participating in the Catastrophic Podcast Project. Our bushfire season hasn't ended yet. So my big message to you is please be safe. Look after each other, care for this planet, and do not stop fighting for action around climate change. This podcast was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world. Always will be, always will be. Aboriginal man! The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media dot studio.